I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer health topics in a smart and sometimes counterintuitive way you won't hear anywhere else. Like, what's the least amount of exercise I can do to get the benefits? Which psychedelics can improve my mental health? And how can I check for cancer if I don't have a family doctor? Top experts help me bring you what you need to know in plain language in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Nora Young. This is Spark. It's easy to take the built environment around us for granted, but what we build shapes how we live, where we go, and how we feel. So today on Spark, a look at the impact of infrastructure, our massive road networks and sky-piercing buildings, how they affect the natural world and us, and why we need to make the case for less sprawl. I walk around my home city of Toronto a lot, and nearly everywhere, from the downtown core to the furthest reaches of the sprawl, there are skyscrapers. Pretty much every city around the world now has them. They're a marvel of engineering and design, and there's one particular invention to thank for all that. The Industrial Revolution made skyscrapers possible, allowed us to build taller with structural steel and steel frames, and we were able to create cranes that would allow us to move the steel up to higher stories. But what really changed it was the safety elevator, because before the safety elevators, there were elevators, but they were just not safe. So you wouldn't get people up into a tall building in this kind of dark cabin that could come crashing down any moment. So since that elevator, which was around the 1850s, we see the first high-rise buildings. This is Stefan L. I'm an architect and also a professor at Virginia Tech. And the author of Super Tall, How the World's Tallest Buildings Are Reshaping Our Cities and Our Lives. Uh, Super Tall is a building that's taller than 300 meters. And when you get to that level, uh, it requires a whole new level of engineering in terms of the structure, but also the elevators and the mechanical services to make them feasible. The first skyscraper was completed in Chicago in 1885. Over time, the benchmark for these buildings grew from 20 stories to upwards of 50 stories. And we've been constructing taller and taller buildings in cities like New York, Singapore, and Dubai, where the world's tallest skyscraper currently is, the Burj Khalifa. It stands at 828 meters and 160 stories. With dizzying new heights came new categories of skyscrapers, super tall, mega tall. While Canada doesn't have any super talls, some of the skyscrapers in the works in Toronto right now are projected to be super talls. So if you look at the demographic trends, the past 20 years has really seen unprecedented urbanization. So we now live in a world society that's about 56% urbanized. If you compare that to 1980, it was about almost 40%, but if, if you look at the numbers, that's roughly several billion people that were added to cities. And this trend is continuing. And we see this reflected in major cities, cities like Toronto, New York, but also other cities in which there is a kind of demand for people to live in certain places like Manhattan. And developers are responding to that by building tall buildings. At the same time, there's some governments like Singapore or China that are really promoting tall buildings because that allows them to live more compact 
So Singapore, for instance, is is a country, but it's really the size of a city, and it's a country with you know six million people. Mm-hmm. So if everybody were to live in a single family home, that couldn't work. That couldn't fit. Yeah. So that's why some some nations deliberately promote high rise living. But beyond the sort of urbanization and population demands. What would you say is behind what seems to be this very human desire to build tall buildings? Yeah, that's a good point. So, you know, obviously there's there's a demographic trend. But on top of that, there's also what you could say like a race for the tallest building between countries, between different cities. And that race is also driving the very tallest of the skyscrapers. And we call them super tall. And, and now we even have mega talls, which are buildings taller than 600 meters. So it's those kind of extreme versions of the skyscrapers that we're seeing today. They're, they're really driven by spectacle and by competition between people to make a statement. To create a landmark. Yeah. I mean, it seems like in European cities in particular, for a while, they really didn't want anything to do with tall buildings, but that's changed recently. So why have cities like Paris and and London, you can certainly think of in this regard, uh, who have focused on preserving the identity of the neighborhoods now embrace them? Yeah, I, I would say this is a movement across Europe. I myself am from the Netherlands, but the Netherlands now has you know, hundreds of skyscrapers under development, which is unheard of because we kind of see ourselves as a low-rise country. Mm-hmm. So I think there, there's several things. Obviously, you know, urbanization trends are happening there, but it's also a younger generation that's moving to cities. It, this whole urban renaissance that we talk about that started about 20, 30 years was really driven by millennials. Who like living in cities and who actually may be open to, to living in a skyscraper. And it's that generation that we kind of see reflected in those new skylines. And that has really changed the look of a lot of cities, including London. You know, for centuries, it was the St. Paul's Cathedral that was the tallest structure. As a matter of fact, there are guidelines in place in London called the View Protection Corridors to make sure that the St. Paul's Cathedral would always be the icon that was clearly visible in the skyline. But now there's many other competitors that are much taller and also with more exuberant shapes that are really kind of drawing the attention away from those um, old landmarks. Mm You were the architect behind what was at one point the tallest building in the world, the Canton Tower in China. It pushed boundaries at the time, but you write in the book about how quickly it was overtaken by other buildings not long after that. So what's behind just the speed at which we can now build such tall buildings that we couldn't before? Yeah, it it depends on the construction method. But if you're looking at uh, reinforced concrete and building a tower out of concrete, because we can pump up concrete through pipes, that really saves a lot of time. So for instance, in some cities that are quite advanced in terms of the skyscraper construction, like uh, New York, you can get to another story within two days. So 50 story building, you can build the concrete frame in in only 100 days. Uh, Yeah, obviously that's different for the very tallest buildings, they still take more time. But yeah, we've really perfected building with uh, concrete and that allows us to get these very fast construction times. Yeah. Can you talk a bit more about other innovations in engineering and design that are just allowing us to build these much taller buildings? Well, one key innovation is uh, high-performance concrete. So the concrete we use today is very different from how the Romans first invented it. Sometimes it has these tiny little bubbles in them to make sure that it becomes a little bit lighter. Sometimes we add steel fiber to the mix that also makes it stronger. 
There's new chemical components, like we call them super plasticizer, that make the mix much stronger because one of the key ingredients of concrete is water. So having less water allows us to have a much stronger concrete. So if you look at that development of that material, it's really, <laughs> it's, it's, it's gone through the roof in terms of what you can do with it. So just to put that in perspective, about 150 megapascals right now is where the bar is at for reinforced concrete. And what that means is about 20,000 pounds per square inch. So imagine oh. three elephants standing on uh, an area the size of a postage stamp. So obviously that is part of the equation, the new materials. We have better structures, the way we design things, we are able to circumvent the wind by creating more ingenious shapes that don't get the full force of the wind. We have what we call tune mass dampers on the top stories. They're a little bit like counterweights. So they take out the shake of the building by going into the opposite side of the wind direction. So there's many innovations. And perhaps one important innovation that we <laughs> tend to forget about is the elevator. Mm. So going back to the safety elevator, which really triggered the, the high rise. But if you're looking at today, you know, we can have elevators that go 50 miles per hour wow. and they may possibly go even faster. Now, what is limiting that speed is actually the length of the cable and the weight of the cable. So they're innovating with new materials. But the ultimate limit is actually human is how fast can our ears adjust when we go up? because of the pressure differential as you move up. And also, how fast can we go down? And going down, we can go as fast as we go up because we get that weightless feeling yes. as we move down. So that limit is about 22 miles per hour. Mm -hmm. I feel like we now see skyscrapers with different shapes than what we think of as the classic modernist skyscraper, you know, ones that incorporate yeah. sort of waves and twists and spiral forms. Why are we seeing that? Yeah, there's a real clear shift if you compare the Empire State Building, for instance, which is a very stable outlines and gradually move up toward. I think it's a reflection of our increasing technology, our stronger materials and, you know, better structure, but also our ability to design these complex geometries. So right now, virtually every architecture office uses computers to, to design these geometries and we can automate very complex procedures of, you know, calculating how strong the structure should be or how much wind it would absorb a certain shape. So that allows us to do that. And, you know, in some cases, that's more efficient. The Shanghai Tower, for instance, in, in China, which, which is 600 meters tall, wow. has a twisting shape. But that is better. That allows the designers to save construction material for structure because that twisting shape better deflects the wind okay. than, for instance, like a square shape would be. So that has clear advantages. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to me a bit about what some of the very real uh, physical consequences are of having tall buildings in our cities? Well, they are uh, a significant physical presence. So you can imagine they change the climate around them, the microclimate, from adding shade to changing wind conditions. And in, in the city of London, for instance, that is a problem because there's a lot of tall towers very close to each other. And sometimes the, uh, there's wind speeds on the ground level that are quite uncomfortable for people and are known to blow people off their bikes quite literally. Mm. 
So whenever we do a big project like that, there's these environmental review procedures that they have to go through and make sure that it's still safe. But in some cases, for instance, in New York, you know, the, if you look at the latest generation of skyscrapers, they're so tall that they cast shadows much further than they used to do and very deep in Central Park, for instance. Yeah. So that has caused some uproar. You know, before you would be lying on Sheep's Meadow and, and you would be having the sun shining on your face. But, you know, if you do that now, depending on the time of day, you, you will get shade, which may be welcome or, you know, depending on how hot it is. But if it's cold, that's not something you, you won't ever see. Yeah, we certainly complain about that in Canadian cities in the middle of the winter when you can't <laughs> find the sun to, <laughs> to protect you. But can you talk to me a bit about um, some of the social impacts on residents of these buildings and city dwellers who in- encounter them? Um, you know, I mean, people often complain, for example, about the lack of human scale of some of these buildings. Yeah, no, that's a very fair point. And what's key here is how does the tower meet the street? So if there's a person that's about five, six stories elevated from the street level, you can no longer recognize that person's face. So that personal contact is lost. Now, why do we like that personal contact in cities? I'm also an urban designer. And you know, this is something that people like Jan Jacobs celebrate it. They call it eyes on the street. It's that kind of casual form of surveillance that we look at other people that is not only fun to do, but it also can help avoiding dangerous situations, for instance. So we like that piece that people can still look at the street and still have this contact. Now, when you just build a regular tower and all the way down to the street, that's personal contact is lost. But you can bring that back. For instance, uh, the way they do it in Vancouver, and there's a term for that. It's called Vancouverism. It's the idea of having a tower, but then a podium below the the tower that meets the street with, for instance, townhouses where you still have that human contact. So the essential thing here is how do we make sure that the tower meets the street in a humane way with smaller scale buildings? So how do you achieve that kind of Vancouverism? Does it involve zoning or planning differently? Yeah, absolutely. So the urban planning that Vancouver has achieved through Vancouverism, which by the way, is not just about human scale at the ground, but it's also about making sure that the towers are relatively slim so that they don't really overwhelm the skyline and you can still have views that they don't block, you know, it's precious waterfront, for instance. So all of this was a result of the regulations and and the new zoning that um, the city planning department set up. And it's that model that's actually really celebrated as a good example across the world. I'm Nora Young, and today on Spark, we're talking about the global skyscraper boom and its impact on our cities and us. Right now, my guest is Stefan Al, an urban designer and architect who specializes in tall buildings. He says the environmental impact of skyscrapers presents a complicated story. On one hand, they're certainly not the most environmentally friendly structures, especially the taller you get. And the reason is that the taller you get, the more energy you need to pour into the the structure. You need to have more material to make sure it stands up because the dominant force on the skyscraper that's 30 or 40 stories or taller is actually not gravity. It is the wind. So, you know, lower rise structures don't really deal with that problem. So, yes, they consume more energy in terms of 
uh, using materials. But at the same time, you can also save energy in other ways. First of all, people who live in apartments, they have less space generally. So they're living more compact and there's less space that we need to heat and cool, for instance. But most importantly, by building tall, you can save land around you. So compare Phoenix, for instance, which is, uh, you know, America's city that's kind of known as a sprawling city, a very suburban city with Manhattan. In Manhattan, people live 20 times denser. Mm -hmm. So that means that there's a lot less utility that you need to build in terms of roads or, or miles of sewage lines, miles of, of, of water pipes, but also that when you're building more compact, it becomes more viable to use public transit and for a city to allow that investment uh, in high quality public transit and public spaces. Because if you're a city like Phoenix, it becomes very difficult to make public transit feasible. And that also helps with uh, reducing the carbon footprint. So allowing more people to take public transportation or take trips on foot. So do you think on balance that what you call compact cities are better for the environment than sprawling cities? They are definitely better for the environment because we save environmental land and we can save for transport energy consumption. However, they do bring other issues with them. You know, once you start restricting land supply uh, and, and if the demand on land increases, you get housing affordability issues, right. right? So you need to avoid that through possibly affordable housing or, or incentivizing below market rate housing. Mm-hmm. The 432 Park Avenue luxury apartment building in Manhattan's Billionaire's Row has been <laughs> dubbed, as I understand it, the Awful Waffle. And it's this super skinny <laughs> tower that stands uh, 13, almost 1400 feet tall. What do you make of that building? Yeah, it was one of the first of that length. And it's also a new category of building we call the super slender. So what that means is that they're really slender for their size. If you look at 20th century skyscrapers, mostly they were office buildings. So they're a little bit thicker because we want office floor plates to have a certain size. But but these are actually just luxury buildings. And with only one apartment per floor, which is really not efficient because you're spending so much on on structure and elevators and so on. So usually residential towers were known to have at least you know 10, 20 units per floor, but here it's only one. So that's only possible because they are extreme luxury, right? Some of these apartments they go for tens, and you know there's even one of them that goes for two hundred million dollars, not in that tower, but in another building. So being I would say one of the first ones to represent that new type. It got a lot of heat. It's also seen as a you know, symbol of the rich, the 0.01%. And there's been some construction issues with that tower. Some of the tenants complained because it was swinging a little bit too much when the tower swings too much. <laughs> the, the elevator <laughs> stops working. Uh, apparently, there was a report of a trash chute. When you open it, it sounded like a bomb going off. <laughs> Because of the pressure differential right. uh, in the chute. So, so yeah, it's, it's gotten some heat. But, you know, I personally think that it's, it's, it's hard when you're one of the first ones to do that. And some of these problems can be overcome in the long run. Mm -hmm. There is this longstanding relationship between luxury and skyscrapers. But in the book, you argue that it doesn't have to be this way. Can you talk a little bit about some examples of where skyscrapers are avoiding like the housing impacts? 
Yeah, so Singapore is a great example. It's also a very unique example because about 80% of the housing in Singapore is is public housing. But there's one building there. It's called the Pinnacle. It's an affordable housing project. It's got three different towers. They're each 50 stories tall, and they're interconnected with different elevated platforms. So, you know, when you see it, you would think, oh, this is a luxury building. And it's you know pretty cool to live in. And imagine, you know, waking up there and going to the top floor and to strong on this elevated park, this elevated platform, you know, for your morning run. It's a pretty exciting project. It just comes to show that even though we typically associate high rises with luxury, it doesn't need to be that way. And there's plenty of examples of um, tall towers that are not luxury housing. Mm. There are still places that have limits on uh, how tall buildings can be. Washington, D.C. has a, a height act that limits most buildings to around 13 stories. And Bali has a law that restricts buildings <laughs> to being no taller than about the height of a coconut tree, 15 meters. <laughs> Do you think we maybe need limits on new builds considering the pace at which these structures are being built? Well, every city has its own regulations and ultimately it all depends on those local policies, right? It's not something that we regulate on a, on a national level, except for some countries like Singapore. And some cities may embrace it. Places like New York, which actually has uh, very limited regulations on, on height. And other places like Bali, they may not, right? Because it doesn't fit in their culture or what they're trying to achieve in terms of their built environment. <laughs> So I think it's, you know, we don't need these uniform regulations across the world. What I'm just calling for is to, to have an open mind for skyscrapers because they do help us preserve land and we can use that land for other purposes, whether it's for recreation or growing forests. And I should say that Canada is really leading the way in terms of new skyscraper construction using mass timber, for instance, which is much more sustainable than, than concrete and steel. So if we use those type of materials, we can overcome some of the skyscrapers fundamental flaws, which is, you know, the lot of energy that it requires to build them. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit more about sustainability? You talk about the dilemma of cooling and heating these really tall buildings and especially the challenges of air conditioning. Could you explain that a little bit? Well, the tallest towers, they have a real problem because it's very difficult to pump up water up to, let's say, 100 stories. So what you see in those towers, and it's, it's actually very hard to see it, is that every 20, 30 stories, there's an entire floor dedicated to what we call mechanical services. It's just oh. basically a bunch of pumps that move water up and down. Because if you were to pump up the water all the way in one shot, you would need a pump that we typically only see in nuclear reactors. So having those interstitial floors help with that and designers try to hide them somehow, and they use lots of techniques like shadow boxes, which essentially is a, is a mirror that looks like a window. So it doesn't seem like, you know, there are these um, purely mechanical floors inside the structure. But I would say that maybe a more important issue is for, you know, the average skyscraper is that, you know, very often they're built out of glass, which is not sustainable because, first of all, glass is a poor insulator. It simply lets in <laughs> too much radiation or sunlight, which then heats up the building and really requires skyscrapers to be very much dependent on the air conditioning. So even in cool climates like Canada, for instance, without air conditioning, it would be unbearably hot. And, you know, greenhouses are great for growing tomatoes, but maybe not for people <laughs> to feel comfortable. 
So what we're seeing is, is a shift away from that. And we call that changes in, in the window wall ratio. So it's less window, more wall. And obviously glass walls are still great for allowing views, but it shouldn't be everywhere. Yeah. So yeah, that's one of the key changes that uh, more sustainable skyscrapers will need to overcome. So we love that crystalline aesthetic, but maybe it's not for the whole tower, right? Maybe we can also get that glimmer through other more traditional materials like ceramics, for instance, which is making a comeback. Mm. Can we talk a little bit about future trends? COVID-19 seemed to shift the conversation around office buildings and even residential condos and urban density more, more broadly. How did that period alter how we now think about skyscrapers and design? Yeah, it really accelerated a trend that was already happening, which is moving away from office towers in terms of the tallest buildings. So the 20th century was really the skyscraper that was an office building, like the Empire State Building and the Chrysler Building. But what we're seeing more and more is mixed use. So not just office, but also residential, also hotel, also retail, all in a single project. And the percentage of residential mostly has really increased if you look at the last 20 years. So a lot of the tallest towers on the skyline of New York today are residential. Mm. And it's the office towers that are largely empty uh, in some places of New York and other cities as well. So that's really changing how we think of the skyscraper. Are we getting closer to being able to build the mile high building like the one Frank Lloyd Wright envisioned back in 1956? Like, Is there a limit to how tall we can go? I think we have the technological capability of doing it. The question is, who's going to want to do this and, <laughs> and put up the money for that? And the only place I can think of is probably, you know, somewhere in the Middle East or in Saudi Arabia. But now it seems they are actually going for very different types of <laughs> construction. Uh, there's, for instance, the line. I'm not sure if you heard it. It's like two super gigantic buildings in the desert, right? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. it's it's like a, consider it like a horizontal skyscraper. That's the shape of a line that kind of dribbles through the desert. So those are the regimes that are willing to put up the resources for some something that tall. And right now there's no mile high skyscrapers under construction. There is a kilometer high skyscraper in Jeddah, which is uh, under construction, but construction halted on that project. So it remains to be seen if they're going to finish that one. Thanks so much for your insights on this. My pleasure, Nora. Thanks for the invitation. Stefan Al is an architect and author of Super Tall, How the World's Tallest Buildings Are Reshaping Our Cities and Our Lives. From the Spark, Archives, 2012. Joe Goldie, author of Roads to Power. Well, one of the things that I love talking about, about visions for infrastructures, I, I came across a body of utopian thinking that, that starts in about 1850. These are works that you can find on Google Books that have titles like The History of Progress, The Progress of a Nation. These treatises about the life of technology that were put forward at the moment when infrastructure was starting to peak in mid-19th century. And they, they hypothesized all that technology could do on its own, maybe without government or without, without anybody guiding it. They said, 
look, in another couple of generations, we're going to have roads connecting everything, steam connecting everything, instantaneous information. And as soon as that happens, there will be no more ethnic difference. There will be no more poverty. In fact, we think all of the people of the world will be speaking one language together soon. And I started reading that. I, of course, I thought immediately about contemporary prophecies about the internet mm -hmm. of the kind that you see in the writing of Ray Kurzweil, you know, the theory of the singularity. Mm -hmm. Well, again, there's a you, you, you hear this type of thinking that technology on itself is going to solve all yeah. of your social problems, lift up all boats. And it doesn't exactly work that way. In fact, my, my research suggested that the politics of who pays for infrastructure and who gets connected by infrastructure is one of the most thickly debated and dangerous issues around technology, one of the most important issues in the 18th century and one of the most important issues in our time. Mm -hmm. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nora Young, and this is Spark. Today, we're talking about the social and ecological impact of our everyday infrastructure. We heard Stefan Al talk about growing efforts to make the construction of tall buildings more sustainable, mostly because experts like Stefan believe the benefits of compact cities and vertical density outweigh the drawbacks, especially when compared to urban sprawl. One of the biggest issues with urban sprawl is the impact of expansive road networks. And that's where a discipline called road ecology comes in. Everything from how roads affect animals, roadkill, you know, the dead deer or raccoon that you see by the side of the highway, to more subtle problems like road noise or the road salt that we're adding to our highways that's contaminating rivers and lakes to tire particles and how those are affecting the environment. So road ecology is sort of the sum total of all of these different interactions between our, our transportation infrastructure and the natural world. My name is Ben Goldfarb and I'm an environmental journalist and the author of the book Crossings, How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet. In his book, Ben looks at things like habitat connectivity, the idea that animals need landscapes large enough and connected enough to meet their needs. But roads often disrupt animals' ability to move freely from one habitat to another. This has led to the construction of wildlife corridors, protected routes that allow safe movement along underpasses and overpasses. Here in Canada, there are 44 wildlife crossing structures in Banff National Park alone, and there are over a thousand across the U.S. Ben writes about innovative efforts in countries around the world to make roads more ecologically responsible, from India to Brazil. But his journey started back in 2013, when he visited a series of wildlife crossings that had been built along Highway 93 in northern Montana. 
You know, we do so much on this planet to make animals' lives more difficult and more dangerous. And here was this multi-million dollar piece of infrastructure that we had built to make their lives a little safer and easier. And I, I just found that so inspiring and, and that uh, got me going on this journey. While the construction of wildlife corridors has continued to grow in the years since, new roads are being built at a staggering rate. Today, there are something like 40 million miles of road around the world, and we're adding likely another 25 million kilometers by 2050. So that's a really significant increase. And the the problem with that is that a lot of that new infrastructure is being built in places that have lots of the last big chunks of intact habitat, you know, places like Nepal and Indonesia and Kenya, uh, where these these big new highways are being built. And of course, those highways are valuable for the, the people who live there. They connect humans with hospitals and schools and they get crops to market and all of those good things that roads do. But, you know, they're also uh, really jeopardizing, you know, some of the last intact habitats for elephants and gorillas and tigers, you know, name a large species of charismatic megafauna and infrastructure is one of the primary threats to its survival. Yeah. But the U.S. itself has an incredible number of roads, right? Yeah, we're we're definitely the the world's leaders in road mileage. We have four million miles of road, by far the most. Uh, and of course, you know, we built most of those roads long before we recognized uh, exactly how damaging all of the infrastructure was for nature. And we, you know, we put many of them in the the worst possible places and built them in the worst possible ways. Hmm. So in the book, you go through some of the adverse impacts of our roads and the impact they have on the natural world. So could you walk us through sort of the major ones that you came across in your work? I mean, certainly the most visible one is is roadkill, right? Because the animals that we tend to see are usually those common ones, you know, like deer and squirrels and raccoons, we, we dismiss roadkill as being a real crisis for biodiversity. But, you know, here in the United States, some of our most endangered species like Florida panthers and ocelots and tiger salamanders, you know, roadkill is one of the primary forces that's that's endangering their survival. So roadkill isn't just something that afflicts, you know, those common animals that we see everywhere. It's, it's really one of the primary contributors to our current mass extinction event. And the numbers of roadkill are just truly astonishing, right? Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's more than a, a million animals every day here in the, the U.S. alone, uh, which, is, which is really hard to fathom. But, you know, it's not just roadkill. It's also that barrier effect that highways create, right? When you have a steady stream of traffic, that prevents animals from moving around the landscape and finding food and mates and all of the other things to, they, they need to survive. You know, there are cases here in the U.S. of herds of mule deer and elk and pronghorn antelope that have actually starved en masse because they haven't been able to complete their migration and you know reach the the food sources that they need and those aren't those animals aren't getting hit by cars right you never see that dead animal by the side of the highway and yet you know roads are this huge form of habitat loss you know the road itself might only be you know, 100 feet wide. uh, And yet it's preventing animals from reaching hundreds of thousands of acres of land that they they need to do their thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the perhaps surprising things that you point out is just the the impact of the noise of roads on the ability of animals to prey or avoid predation. Totally. Yeah, that, you know, noise pollution is a, a huge 
form of, again, habitat loss. You know, if you're, I mean, think about the life of a, an owl, for example, you know, this species with incredibly keen hearing that has to listen for the, you know, the crunch of a mouse's foot, feet in the, the leaves. Uh, well, if, you know, if, if all of the noise from engines and tires is masking those subtle acoustic signals, you know, that's a place that the owl can't live, right? So again, you know, the road might only be, you know, 50 meters wide, and yet it is that that noise pollution envelope, you know, all of that noise pollution is billowing away from the road and, and really causing habitat loss across, across a, a large swath of land. So from what you've observed, what animals have been the most impacted by roads? Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a good question. You know, it's, you, you can sort of think about two ends of the spectrum. You know, on one end, you've got the animals that are, are getting killed by roads in huge numbers, you know, and those, those are often reptiles and amphibians, you know, frogs, salamanders, turtles, snakes, especially those, you know, those frogs and salamanders, those amphibians, because they have to migrate to their breeding ponds each each spring. And they, you know, they tend to move on these rainy, wet, warm spring nights. Uh, and in the process, they often cross roads, you know, and these animals, unfortunately, are, you know, not the brightest critters in the world. They don't necessarily know that the car is a threat and they, you know, they'll move across the road en masse and, you know, hundreds or even thousands will be crushed in a, a single go. So, you know, for those little, those little animals, you know, that we generally don't notice, you know, roads are a, a huge problem. And then, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, you've got the bigger stuff, you know, animals like mountain lions and grizzly bears, you know, these, these much rarer, large carnivores that have to patrol huge territories. Uh, and because they inhabit large areas, you know, they often cross roads. And, you know, those animals tend to be road avoiders. They don't like crossing roads. And as a result, they miss out on access to a lot of habitat. You know, there are some very famous mountain lions near Los Angeles that never cross roads at all. And as a result, have become very inbred. So you've got, you know, the large carnivores on one end, the little amphibians on the other end, and they're affected in different ways, but they're they're both in, in deep trouble. Yeah, I mean, one of the consequences that you point out is this idea of genetic connectivity amongst a species and how road construction over the decades has affected that. Can, can you get into that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, I mean, th those, those mountain lions are really a prime example. You know, they live in this little pocket of habitat uh, just west of Los Angeles, and they're surrounded by some of the busiest freeways in the world, highways that have hundreds of thousands of cars every day. And as a result, you know, the mountain lions, they're trapped in this on this little island. They can't leave the population because, you know, they've got the freeways hemming them in. But even worse, new mountain lions can't enter the population, right? Because again, that wall of traffic is preventing them from, from moving around. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, you know, kind of a primary example of this fragmentation created by highways can really lead to long-term declines of a population and even eventually extinction. You know, scientists have written that these mountain lions are in an extinction vortex, a kind of a long-term doom spiral that's, that's going to wipe them out if nothing's done to help them. So one of the examples that I find striking is that the DNA of grizzly bears in the northern Rockies, and I, th I think it's cliff swallows, were altered over time by the human-made environment. Yeah, exactly. You know, the grizzly bears are another case of habitat fragmentation due to roads, right? That, you know, I mean, you can basically take a DNA sample of a grizzly bear and say, okay, he was born on this side of this highway because highways, you know, so totally 
divide these animals. Cliff swallows are really an example of, of animals evolving uh, due to the presence of roads. Cliff swallows build their mud nests on the underside of, of highway bridges and overpasses. And as a result, they, you know, they get hit by cars. But what researchers have found over time uh, is that they've become less susceptible to roadkill. And the reason is that the long-winged cliff swallows are basically being killed, leaving the short-winged ones behind. And the reason for that is that if you have long wings, that's good for long straight flights. But if you have short wings, that's good for maneuverability, for making lots of tight turns and rolls. So it's those long-winged cliff swallows that have gotten killed. And the whole population has basically developed shorter wings in a very short period of time. You know, we think about evolution as this process that happens over the course of millennia. And yet in just several decades, uh, you know, cliff swallows, this species has evolved to develop shorter wings. That's just what a powerful selective pressure uh, roads and traffic really are. Yeah, that's wild. So you argue that there are some longstanding assumptions about the ecological cost of roadkill. What are some of them and, and what's been driving these beliefs? One of the primary myths that that has been you know disproven in the last couple of decades is that roadkill isn't a big biological crisis. You know, I, I, th- I think that for a long time, uh, you know, biologists assumed that, you know, yes, Okay, frogs and other other relatively common animals are getting killed by cars, but nature can basically compensate for that. You know, and even even Thoreau writes about that. You know, about how uh, you know many frogs might be crushed by wagons, and yet you know it's just a sign of how abundant nature is, and and really it's it's kind of wonderful. Um, but you know, in in, in recent decades, you know, really led by Lenore Farig, who's a great uh, Canadian road ecologist, uh, you know, it's it's been shown that, yeah, roadkill truly is a, a population level threat, you know, that nature actually can't compensate uh, for all the animals we're killing with our, our cars. And even abundant species or seemingly abundant species of frogs and turtles and other, other critters uh, really are in this state of free fall in, in many places, um, entirely due to roadkill. But is it really all bad? Like, is, is there any good that can come out of the construction of our roads for certain animals? It depends who you are, right? If you're uh, a scavenger, uh, like a turkey vulture or, you know, a bald eagle or a golden eagle, you know, roads roads can be a good thing. You know, they're they're providing this source of carrion, of carcasses uh, that, that line our, our roadsides. And, you know, in, in many cases, you know, those scavengers have really benefited. But, you know, at the same time, it's a dangerous benefit, right? And, you know, there are lots of instances of animals like golden eagles that actually get hit by cars themselves because they're they're drawn to the road by the promise of resources. So, you know, the road is potentially an ecological trap. It's this force that beckons certain animals and then ultimately kills them. People say that America had a love affair with the car, but it was sort of a forced marriage. From the Spark, Archives, 2022. Architect, Adam Susnick, creator of Segregation by design. Redlining in the United States was a process in the 1930s in which government agency called the Homeowners Loan Corporation went city by city, neighborhood by neighborhood, grading each neighborhood for investment value based on race. That happens in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. 
And then urban renewal kicks off with that Federal Housing Act in 49, and then the 1956 Federal Highway Act. It provides 90% federal funding for freeway constructions. So what happens is there's a lot of incentives for the white middle class to move out to the suburbs and to drive. So the effect of these highways is to encourage automobile-based suburbanization. I mean, simply that. It's, it's to enervate the city and to segregate, because it only draws the white people out. It's, it's to provide the literal route of white flight. I'm Nora Young. Right now on Spark, my guest is Ben Goldfarb, author of Crossings, How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet. While a lot of the book focuses on the relationship between infrastructure and the natural world, Ben also writes about the impact of roads and highways on people and communities. Yeah, you know, we I mean, we were talking earlier about road noise, right, as this form of habitat loss that's really impinging on animals' lives. And and roads do the exact same thing to humans. You know, we're, we're so awash in road noise that we tend not to notice it in a lot of ways, I think. And yet, you know, road noise is it's one of the great public health crises that we don't really talk about, I think. And then you've got the air pollution. Of course, you have the direct mortality, right? You know, you've got the division of of neighborhoods and communities created by these big urban freeways that we built during the 1960s and 70s. So, you know, we think about roads as being these forces of freedom and human mobility, helping us get to the places we need to get to. And and yet they're, you know, really catastrophes for our our own lives as well as wild animals. Mm -hmm. And yet, of course, roads are you know, important. They bring goods to us. They allow us to travel, all that kind of stuff. What do you make of sort of eco-friendly innovations in automation, like the electrification of the fleet or autonomous vehicles? Yeah. Roads are incredibly valuable and helpful in in so many respects. And I I use them often as basically all of us do. But, you know, they they do come with enormous ecological consequences. And, and, you know, those technological innovations like electrification and autonomy, I I don't think are going to ultimately save us. Uh, You know, we do. I think that often in the U.S. at least, you know, we talk about electrification as being the answer to all of our problems. Right. You know, as, as though the as though the only problem with cars is their carbon emissions. And if we just replace the internal combustion engine with a battery, we'll basically solve the problem of cars' impacts on the environment. And yet there are so many other impacts, right? There's the the roadkill, the barrier effect, the road salt, the noise pollution, um, which, you know, electric cars are not going to help because even though the batteries are basically silent, the the tires are still uh, a huge source of, of noise pollution, right? So, you know, we can't just take the carbon out of transportation uh, and assume that we've suddenly made it ecologically benign. And, you know, I, I think that autonomous cars are, are much the same problem. You know, yes, they're going to reduce collisions with large animals. Ultimately, I think, you know, they're going to be someday they're going to be better at detecting deer and moose and elk and the other big critters than we are. So they're going to save us some car crashes and they're going to save some large animal lives. But, you know, their sensors aren't equipped to detect small animals. So they're not going to help all of those frogs and salamanders and turtles that we've been talking about. And they're going to lead to an increase in travel. You know, when you can just sit in the backseat of your car and watch Netflix, 
instead of doing the driving. Right. You know, there's nothing stopping you from driving all of the time, right? So, you know, all of the studies suggest that car travel is going to increase with autonomy, and, and that's certainly bad for nature. So I'm not sure that we're going to solve any of these problems by making our cars higher tech. So what can people do in their everyday lives to combat these effects? Is it mostly about lowering driving speed? Yeah, the lowering driving speed, I think, is is important. Obviously, you know, the, the slower you're going, the more time both you and the animals have to react. But, you know, ultimately, I, I don't think that the way to solve this problem is by changing individual driver behavior. I think it's really about changing our infrastructure. You know, it's it's really about creating more opportunities for animals to cross roads safely through the use of wildlife crossing structures, you know, these bridges and tunnels and underpasses uh, that allow animals to get to where they need to go without having to walk over the surface of the road and risk becoming roadkill. And, you know, Canada is really one of the leaders in that field. You know, I'm sure, uh, you know, many listeners have seen those famous Banff wildlife crossings that have really inspired so many similar projects uh, all over the world and have helped grizzly bears and mountain lions and elk and all kinds of other critters uh, cross the Trans-Canada Highway safely. So, you know, it's something that we really have to solve at at an infrastructural level by engineering roads that are, are safer for both people and animals. Can we talk a bit more about some of the ways that road ecologists and conservationists around the world really are coming up with ways to combat some of these adverse effects? Like, Can you tell me about some of the, the ones you've observed and, and what you make of them? Yeah, you know, one of the the really cool places that I, I went in working on this book was Brazil. And there it's a, an incredibly biodiverse country that's, you know, building up our, its, its infrastructure right now. And, you know, because they haven't built out fully yet. You know, they can they can actually be more innovative than than we've been in the in the U.S. and and Canada in some ways. You know, here we've we built our our major highways decades ago before we really recognized how deleterious they were going to be to nature. Whereas you know, countries like Brazil that are building their infrastructure or a lot of it at least now, you know, they can kind of do it right from the get go. So you know, one of the places that I visited was this state park near Sao Paulo. Uh, where they had actually engineered a road that was really curvaceous, both on the x-axis and the y-axis. So it kind of rose and fell like waves or a roller coaster um, so that you actually couldn't drive fast on it. You know, it's that's that's one of the challenges of road ecology is getting people to drive uh, more slowly because we have these, you know, these wide, long, straight roads that kind of induce us to go fast. Um, whereas this was a road that was deliberately made to be sinuous so that you couldn't go quickly on it for the sake of wild animals. I thought that was a really cool innovation. You know, you're not just changing the speed limit with signs, you're actually changing it with the design of the highway itself. I thought that was incredibly interesting and innovative. Yeah. And wasn't there one in, uh, I think it was in India with a, ti- a tiger sanctuary where they had some interesting innovations there? Yeah, that's that's a, another amazing story where, you know, India built this highway through a tiger sanctuary, which is, you know, not ideal, right? You know, in a perfect world, I think you'd avoid that important right. <laughs> habitat altogether. But what they did um, to minimize the impact of the highway was that they actually elevated the entire highway on these big concrete pillars so that animals could walk back and forth. You know, for many kilometers, uh, this this highway was, you know, was, was up on these these pillars. And again, you know, that's that's something that you can do when you're building out your infrastructure for the first time. You know, I, I when I think when I began 
working on this book, I, I, I had this idea that, you know, those countries like India and Nepal and Brazil that are, are building their infrastructure now, I, I sort of thought that they were going to look at projects like those Banff wildlife crossings and say, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to emulate, you know, what the engineers did in North America and Europe. But in reality, because again, they're not stuck with this decades old highway system, they can actually be creative from the get-go. And there's a lot that, you know, we in North America should be learning from, uh, from other nations. I'm Nora Young, and right now my guest is environmental journalist Ben Goldfarb. We've been talking about structural approaches to helping wildlife safely cross roadways. In his book Crossings, Ben writes that some of these mitigation features amount to a kind of greenwashing. Overpasses and underpasses and fences, they help address that roadkill problem, they help address that barrier problem. But they don't address the noise pollution issue or the tire particle issue or the road salt issue, right? There's, you know, they, they don't they don't make the road ecologically benign. Um, so, you know, it's you're right that we can't just build those wildlife passages and assume that we have cured all of the problems that roads create. And, you know, I, I do think that's a risk in some of those other countries um, that are building their infrastructure now, where, you know, they're building these potentially ecologically disastrous highways, and they're adding some wildlife crossings. And, you know, and, and some of those governments are saying, well, you know, we're basically, look, look we're basically solving the problem. But, the, you know, the, the only way to make a, a road ecologically benign is, is not to build it at all. Hmm. So how have overpasses changed since the first one that you visited uh, in Montana about a decade ago? I think that they've, they've become more sophisticated in, a, in a, a lot of ways. You know, the first overpass that I visited in, in 2013 was relatively stark. Uh, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of vegetation on it. It was pretty open and, and exposed. And, you know, in the, in the last decade or so, I, I think that, uh, you know, a lot of road ecologists and wildlife biologists and engineers have recognized that, you know, hey, we need to make these structures a little more like ecosystems potentially you know we need we need to account for all of the different animals that might be using them you know we need log piles for the rodents who might want to cross and we need logs and rocks for you know for the the lizards and the snakes and the toads you know and maybe we maybe we need dead trees for raptors to perch on you know we need to do more to make these structures appealing and we need to do more to you know, mask the noise and light pollution issue as well, you know, because if you have a, a really loud, bright highway, well, an animal might not approach the highway at all, and they might not find that wildlife crossing as a result. So now, you know, a lot of these these wildlife crossing structures are including berms and, you know, vegetated screens and walls and other features that kind of mask some of that sensory pollution and make those structures more appealing to the animals. So, you know, thinking about all of the different ways that different species experience these wildlife crossings and the different features that are necessary to make them enticing, uh, you know, I think that's the direction that a lot of road ecologists are going now. Hmm. And, you know, finally, it's just, it's interesting that we have this kind of contradictory relationship between the wilderness adventure and car ownerships, like car commercials often will have you know, people driving through these pristine yeah. forests and rugged terrains. Uh, van life is still very popular uh, for explorers. What's the story there about that tension between cars and, and nature? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Subaru actually has a, a model now called the Subaru Wilderness, which is like the most contradictory, hypocritical <laughs> thing imaginable because wilderness is actually defined by the absence of cars, right? But, you know, the, at, the, at the same time, cars are also how we experience nature in a lot of ways. You know, we, we have all of these national parks in North America that are designed to be visited primarily by the car. And it's, you know, it's, it's the car that allows people to go to these places like Banff and Yellowstone and Yosemite and have these, have these amazing nature experiences and, and fall in love with the natural world, you know, and I've seen, I mean, I've seen grizzly bears and wolves and bobcats and all kinds of cool critters from my car. The car is one of the ways that we encounter nature, even as it's destroying nature. That's, that's, you know, one of the great uh, ironies or paradoxes of, of cars and roads. Yeah. Thanks so much for your insights on this, Ben. Thanks a lot, Nora. I appreciate your your interest. Ben Goldfarb is an environmental journalist and author of Crossings, How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet. You've been listening to Spark. The show is made by Michelle Peruzzi, Samarui Johannes, Samir Chabra, Megan Carty, and me, Nora Young. And by Stefan Al and Ben Goldfarb. And from the Spark archives, Joe Gouldy and Adam Susanek. Subscribe to Spark on the free CBC Listen app or your favorite podcast app. I'm Nora Young. Talk to you soon. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.